course, we have come here to share actually some personal perspectives on family health and family life. Um, my name is Connor Bond. This is the uh, first breakout session for Family Health for GYC West 2015. So if that's the one you're intending to be in, you're in the right place. Uh, we, some of the topics that we're gonna share when we're here are going to sound slightly more like personal health type topics. But that's because from our experience, at being a family for the past 24 years, my husband and I are just uh, celebrating our 24th anniversary as of this uh, month, and so this is part of our celebration. We have realized that there are certain things that must be put first uh, when you are seeking a good family life, good solid family health. And so we are gonna talk about what some of those first things are. Uh, and, and hopefully that will translate well to your own life as you navigate you know, your own family lives and your personal relationships, uh, even friendships. It really is more about relationships than anything else. Uh, let, let's start with prayer. Mark, would you pray for us? Okay, so my name is Connor Bond, and I teach marketing and business ethics at Walla Walla University. I've been teaching there full-time for the last two years. Before that, I was home full-time with our four children, probably for a good 15 years or so. Uh, I have a degree in law, and um, early on, about halfway through law school, I had two children, and by the time I finished law school, I had two more children. <laughs> and as I was doing my internships in downtown Orlando, I would look out across the city where I had dropped off our daughters at a daycare and think, you know, I just cannot leave my children to be raised by somebody else. This is my first calling. So I made, you know, I'd, I had had uh, illusions of, of being a business law attorney in a large law firm downtown, and of course those doors were opening up, um, but when it came down to it and I looked at my own children, I knew what had to come first, and I have never looked back. I thought at that point that, you know, if there was nothing else that I ever did other than raise my own children, that was plenty, that was enough. And um, so there were no regrets there. But it's been interesting how the Lord has now carried me through into a new uh, stage of my life. And I actually ended up teaching at Walla Walla University, which, and, and my two daughters actually took my classes. So I got paid to continue homeschooling them, <laughs> which was kind of a nice thing <laughs> because I have two more children coming up in the ranks now and I'll still be there, uh, you know, teaching them and, and with them in school. So I'm gonna share with you some of the things uh, that come, that epiphanies that I have learned from teaching and from being a mother, from applying the things that I teach to students every day in class that I think are very applicable to family life, that have helped me make sense of some of the experiences that we have had as a family, um, that I have had personally as a mother, uh, as a wife. And the first place that I want to start with has to do with figuring out and facing who we really are. Okay, so the first presentation I'm sharing with you today, I decided to call it the value of a value, the thousand ways that we deceive ourselves. This is my family. My husband, Mark, is here with us. This was a year or so ago at our youngest daughter's eighth grade graduation. She's got a little graduation tie around her neck there. Um, Emily Beth is our oldest on the right. She's now married and lives in Hawaii. We're gonna go from here to visit her there. Um, Chelsea, as the, and Adriana's our youngest. She's the one in my, our, our older daughter's arms. She's 15 now. 
Um, Emily Beth is almost 23. Chelsea is the second from the left. She is 21, almost 22. And she is a head wrangler at a, a camp um, and loves her ministry working with young children. And then Taylor is 16, navigating the waters of being a teenage male, which is not an easy thing in this day and age. So we're still navigating those waters uh, with, with him. One of the verses that I use, in fact, this is the theme verse that I use for every class that I teach at Walla Walla University is Luke 16.10. I start every class with this. I carry it through as a theme every class that I teach, and I, and I finish every class with this text. And that is, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Uh, we're going to be focusing on what seem like some very little things in this seminar because we have discovered, I certainly have discovered in my own personal life, that the little things do matter, that they end up adding up to bigger things. And that is true in our own personal lives. It certainly is true in the lives of our children and our, all of our relationships. So that's kind of the theme. I came across this quote as well that I love, the smallest good act today is a strategic point from which a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. Now, hopefully by the end of this presentation, that will make even bigger sense to you. Uh, but this was a huge epiphany for me. And, and this, again, is another theme for this particular presentation. So I want to ask you, have you ever done something against your good intentions that you really did not want to do? Is there anyone in here who has never done something that they really just felt they should not do or did not want to do and regretted it later? Have you ever done something you didn't want to do? Maybe a bad thing. You've, you have, yes. I think all of us have. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we struggle with this. You know, at the end of the day, you look back and you kind of catalog what you've gone through, what your experiences have been. And, you know, you've got the good things, you've got the bad things, you have the things that you wish you hadn't said, the things that you wish you hadn't done. And, of course, there's no rewind button on life, is there? So what I want to talk about today is the anatomy of a bad decision. And some of this is a, comes from a class that I teach in business ethics because I'm teaching business students. And by the way, business students are, you know, when, when they've rated them in terms of moral cognitive development, at the very bottom. <laughs> um, below doctors, lawyers, <laughs> you know, attorneys, all of, all of that, dentists. Uh, which is interesting. So I, I have a very uphill battle to take these students, usually as juniors and seniors, and hopefully make them aware of a sense of responsibility for their moral decisions in business. Because by the time they get to that point, uh, we certainly don't teach it to them at Walla Walla University. But, but to that point, they already have come with a jaded view that life is one thing and business is another. And there are different rules by which we play in the business world. Well, we're not so different than they are. You may not be a business major. You may not be a, a doctor or an attorney or somebody else who's rated low on the moral scale. Uh, but we all have made bad decisions, bad moral decisions, sometimes making them knowing at the time that we are making a very bad moral decision. Now, I, I'm going to share with you some ideas and some theories that come from uh, secular psychology and, and sociology. Uh, but with the recognition that when you study any discipline, I don't care whether it's psychology, biology, uh, business, marketing, 
if you are studying the truth about those disciplines, you are learning something about God. So when I teach marketing, when I learn marketing, um, I have learned vast things about how God interacts with people. Because marketing really is just the psychology. I mean, that's my specialty. It's really the psychology of why people make transactional decisions that, that they do uh, and how, why they respond in a certain way. So this cognitive moral development is a theory that was developed by uh, Lawrence Kohlberg. I think he was a graduate student when he did this research. He followed some boys. I think there were 50 boys, and he followed them over a number of decades, you know, asking them questions and, and doing research. And he discovered that these boys tended to go through the same levels of moral development. Now, it didn't mean that they necessarily made better decisions as they got older, but the way they processed the decisions that they made and why and on what basis, as how did they determine what was right or wrong at any given point, grew and developed over time in these same ways. And we find this tends to be true with all of us. And this actually reflects, you know, this kind of reveals how God deals with us as we mature and grow in our Christian walk. But he narrowed it down to three phases that we tend to go through in our moral cognitive development. And they, they correspond roughly to ages. You know, you'll see, you reflect, you know, ch childhood and adulthood and hopefully a greater maturity, but not always, not always. So the first phase is the pre-conventional fa phase, and that's when we're saying, you know, we decide, the way we decide what is right or wrong, we say, what can I get away with, okay? I'm waiting for that punishment. If my parents don't spank me, must be okay, right? If I can get away with this, it must be okay. At some point, we start realizing that if we start making some good decisions, we get rewarded. Our mother smiles and is warm and happy, or, or we get an extra dessert, or whatever it may be. And so we start making good decisions, not because they're good or right decisions, but because there's something in it for us, okay? But that is still the pre-conventional, what we would kind of equate with sort of an immature view of what is right and wrong. Is that really asking what's right or wrong? No, we're not even considering at that stage whether something is right or wrong. We're just saying, what's in it for us? What, what can I get away with? And most children operate at that level. But are there adults that operate at that level? Do we all sometimes operate at that level, even if we don't want to admit it? Yes, absolutely. So these are not, we don't, we don't get into these stages and then we're locked into them. It may depend on the circumstances. We may be bouncing around depending on what the decision is. We may have a tremendous amount of maturity with regard to one moral decision and maybe not so much in another area of our lives. Now the conventional stage is we start to gain this awareness of the world around us and people. We start realizing that certain people are doing certain things and if we do things like them, we fit in. Okay, so we start to do those certain things. We start to conform to what, and, and initially we're looking close in. What's my family doing? What are my siblings doing? What are the people, my, my close friends doing? And that's the conventional stage. What are, what are my friends doing? But then we start to see ourselves as a part of a larger society. And, and we realize, wow, you know, there are expectations out there as to how I should behave that are beyond what my family thinks. And maybe I'm part of a larger society. Maybe I have some obligations here. Maybe I should pay attention to what the laws say. Uh, and if they say do this, if they say stop at the stop sign, if they say go 55 on this highway, then maybe that's what I should do because that's what everybody else is doing. Okay, so we go from the pre-conventional stage looking inward. You know, what can I get away with? What's in it for me? 
to looking outward at everybody else. What's everybody else doing? And that becomes our basis for determining what is right versus what is wrong. Are we really asking at that stage what is right versus what is wrong? Not really, not really. At some point, sometimes, we reach a place where we start to ask, you know, what really is right and what really is wrong? And how am I supposed to figure this out? Okay, who is the authority in my life? Is there really a God? You know, and what does the Bible say? And I know what it says, but what does it really mean? And who's supposed to tell me? Who's supposed to figure this out for me? What really is right and what really is wrong? And that's the post-conventional stage. This is where we really start to take responsibility for asking those questions for ourselves. What is right versus what is wrong? So we call that, you know, the, the, at the highest level, we call that having a principled conscience, where you've taken res responsibility for yourself to ask those questions, what is right versus what is wrong. Now, here's the problem. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Okay, that's the reality of what we're dealing with in terms of the hearts that we are born with, the hearts that we tend to cultivate with our choices, and uh, again, those experiences that snowball as a result of living with a heart that is deceitful above all things. Um, so the question is, how well do we really know ourselves? How well do you really know yourself? It's very easy to look at the stages of cognitive moral development and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm really the principled type. I'm really, I'm at that stage in my life where I'm asking what is right and what is wrong. Now those other people, you know, they have issues, but I'm at the principled stage. Okay, we all tend to think that. Certainly, you know, I can watch my students' eyes since they're, they're all kind of identifying with, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not at the kid's level where I'm reward and punishment. Well, the reality is most of my students are very much <laughs> at the what's in it for me, what's the minimum level I can get away with, you know, this is the challenge that I face. The reality is most adults function at the conventional level. What's everybody else doing? That's how we determine what is right and wrong. Even within the Christian world, even within the Adventist world, that's what most people are doing is if they think it's right or wrong, that's what's right or wrong. Okay, so that's the reality of the world we live in. So there is this thing, there's another theory, uh, which I think is more than a theory because all of these things, you know, if truth, if truth is true, we know where it comes from, right? All, everything that is true comes from above, it's from the Lord. And so he has given us knowledge through a variety of sources, but whoever speaks it, it's still from, from the Lord if it's true. Um, moral disengagement theory is based on the idea that we have this psychological ability to convince ourselves that for whatever reason, the standards that we're aware of do not apply to us in a given situation, okay? So we may have been arrived at some principled stage to say, this is the right thing to do. However, we say, you know, we have some excuse that says it doesn't apply to us. You know, we disengage ourselves morally from the situation. I'm going to share with you some of those mechanisms that we all use to distance ourselves from even determining what is right and wrong, much less doing what is right and wrong. So these are disabling mechanisms of moral reaction. These are the things that we do to make us feel less guilty for those bad decisions that we make. In, in life, in relationships, 
And of course, our choices in relationships have some very long-term consequences, don't they? For our children, for our marriages, all of our relationships, our friendships. We tend to dissociate ourselves from that feeling of self-sanction. We don't like to feel guilty at the end of the day. And so we, at the end of the day, we look for excuses for why we've done the things that we do. And, and yet the Lord has, you know, much of the Bible is about calling us back to know who we really are. You know, allowing things to happen in our lives that drive us to our knees and humble us and reveal to us who we are. So these are some of the moral disengagement mechanisms that we tend to use. Uh, sometimes we just change the wording to make it sound a little better. Okay, so when we are, you know, at war in Iran, we don't talk about we bombed and killed thousands, millions of people. We say we did a clean surgical strike in Iran. Now that sounds like something clean and copacetic and something necessary to save lives. It may or may not be. I'm not making a moral judgment one way or the other, but this is an example of we've made a decision as to what we're going to do. We know that it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, so we're going to change the words just a little bit to shift how we analyze it, to distance ourselves from asking whether this was right or wrong, okay? Because that's what this moral disengagement is really about. We don't want to consider the right or the wrong. Moral justification, this is where we look and we say the ends justify the means. So we look for ways to translate it that way. I made a huge mistake, but God works all things together for good and things are better now. So I don't see how anything could have happened otherwise, okay? Now, this may be true. The Lord says, rejoice in all things, right? But he doesn't necessarily say that those bad choices we made were good choices just because they led to good ends. I mean, that's a, that's a very big difference uh, to say that the Lord takes the bad choices, sometimes deliberately uses the bad choices, sometimes I think allows us to make those bad choices in order to let us see who we are, but that doesn't make them good choices. And that's a different perspective, okay? But we tend to do this. We say, well, it turned out well, therefore it must have been a good thing, okay? Which then, if we think that way, allows us to do more bad things because we know he's gonna use it for good. You know, it's, it's a kind of a dispensation toward sort of thinking. Okay, advantageous comparison. We all do this just a little bit in our deepest heart of hearts. You know, at least our kids don't play video games or swear or, you know, whatever it might be. I remember I was, I was at a conference in Florida one time and we were there with our kids and it was all about raising, you know, family. And, um, and we were just, you know, our kids were a little and we just wanted to be the best parents in the world. And I was walking along behind this family and they were all, you know, we had just had trouble getting them into their dresses and on the way into the meetings and it had just been a complete disaster the whole morning. And walking along behind this little family, they were all in perfectly matched jean dresses and everybody, you know, their hair was in little ponytails and everything looked just, you know, not a hair out of place. And all of a sudden, one of the little boys in the family turned around and just stuck his tongue out at me. <laughs> and I remember thinking at that point, okay, well, we're not so bad. <laughs> I mean, we all, we all do this, the sense of, you know, well, they did this, therefore we must not be so bad, okay? It makes us feel better about ourselves when somebody else does something that we know is not so bad. I feel terrible for the poor mother because I just can only imagine the things that my children have done that I never <laughs> knew about that reflected on me, but that's, that's part of being a parent. Um, 
But we, we again, we're morally disengaging and saying, okay, we're not as bad as that family, we're not as bad as that couple or whatever, therefore we must be what? Okay. That's moral disengagement. Another one is displacement of responsibility. Now probably, I wanted to go through and see if I could find all of these in Genesis 1 to 3. I think they're probably buried there somewhere. But here's a good one. Displacement of responsibility, we're just saying it was somebody else's fault altogether. Okay, I had no choice in the matter. This woman that you gave me brought me the fruit. Who said that? Adam. Yeah, I mean, these things started in Eden. You know, these things started in, with, with sin. Then there is diffusion of responsibility. The church board made the decision. I'm not responsible, oops, for the outcome. Okay, we're part of a group. And so we feel that the group made the decision. We feel that the group is probably a good and well-intentioned group. Therefore, we're willing to be identified with their decision or we're willing to blame the group for the decision and say, I don't have a responsibility to act or consider what is right or wrong, separate from the group. Another one is distortion of consequences. We look at the ends, and we're not just saying the ends justify the means, but we're, we're redefining the ends in order to justify what we've done. So millions of lives, of more lives, were saved by dropping that bomb on Hiroshima. Sorry for the typos there. Um, maybe this is true, but does this kind of beg the question as to whether it was right or wrong? This kind of takes us beyond the consideration, right? And that's what we do when we're distorting consequences. We say, well, we did this. The ends not only justified the means, but we're going to distort those ends to make them look even better than they already were just so we can justify our actions and not have to consider the question, is this right or is this wrong? Dehumanization. We see this in a lot of different areas. You know, we tend to dehumanize. We'll, we'll give people numbers. You know, if you can deal with students as a walking social security number, you know, you don't have to deal with their real issues, their real heart issues. You don't have to care so much about them. And that's what I love about teaching at a smaller school is that you, you really, it's very hard to distance yourself from your students. Um, but we see it, you know, in, in the perspective, life is a game of survival of the fittest with the superior race naturally winning out above the rest. You know, it's, it's in the context of a game we give, people categories and numbers instead of names. And if we can dehumanize them, take away their humanity, then we can do things to them that we would not otherwise do. And then finally, attribution of blame. I know I shouldn't have been less disloyal or whatever it is I've done, but he was impossible to live with, okay? This is where we actually blame the victim. We say the victim has done this thing and that's why I did this other thing, and therefore that makes it okay or right. We stop asking what is right or wrong. We stop re-examining what our contribution to the problem was. Now, hopefully you're starting to see what the potential connections might be in the context of the family, but certainly all of these things have to do with how we act and how we represent ourselves in every relationship that we have, not only with each other, not only with our husbands and spouses, and children, but with God himself. Do we sometimes pull these things on God himself? And does he sometimes have to deal with us in ways that allow us to see ourselves for who we really are? Uh, I came across this quote. I may, some of you may know who Elizabeth Elliot is. Um, she died this week, she's the, which is a little disconcerting for me because she's the exact same age as my mother. I said goodbye to my mother, you know, to come down here this week, and I never know when it's going to be the last time I see her. And she's been, she was the source of every good thing. You know, she really, really um, showed me who the Lord 
was and, and had tremendous courage and was a hero to me in the way I think Elizabeth Elliot was. But Elizabeth Elliot had quite a story. Uh, her husband was wanting to be a missionary to the Alcas uh, Indians down in, I think, Peru and was killed. It's a tremendous story. Read it if you ha haven't heard of it. Um, and he was killed trying to make friends with these, you know, with killer tribe. Uh, later, she and her tiny baby daughter, two or three years old, went and lived with that tribe. <laughs> and they have pictures of this. It was just astounding. I just don't even know where that kind of courage comes from except an utter internal change and miracle. And so I really appreciated her. But she says, choices will continually be necessary and let us not forget possible. Obedience to God is always possible. It is a deadly error to fall into the notion that when feelings are extremely strong, we can do nothing but act on them. Now, this is a huge dilemma because we've all been in those situations where our feelings are especially strong and we fall into temptation or we lose our tempers and we break relationships and we do and say things that we very deeply regret later on. And we're left wondering, why did I do that? Why am I this way? And how can I be different? I mean, that's really, isn't that really what we want to know at this stage? Is we know how we are or how we can be in those moments of truth. How can we be different? We want to be different. So why do I do bad things? Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now, there's, that's an interesting twist in there. I, you know, he's saying a lot of different things there that I think are very deeply hidden in the text. But if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Isn't there that sense sometimes when you've done things that you know are wrong? You've said that mean word, that cutting word to your spouse or to your children or to your best friend. And you start to realize, boy, I wish I hadn't done that. And I wish I could do what is good. The law is good. What God calls us to is better. It's better. It's what I want for my life. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. So he's recognizing I want to do well, but I don't. That's, that's the big issue. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot, I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Do you see the tension between that and the previous quote, choices will continually be necessary and possible. Okay, he's saying, I cannot do the thing I want to do, and yet we know that good choices must be possible. So that kind of reduces the question to, okay, if they're possible, how on earth are they possible? Okay, we really want to know, how can this happen? Where's the hope? Now, I know that I, there are many times as a mother, uh, you know, because I, I inherited a good, solid German temper from my father. And, you know, we took our, our children out into the middle of nowhere, Montana, to raise them, thinking that we would get them away from the influences of the world. And guess what? <laughs> it's like peeling an onion. <laughs> you peel, you know, you get rid of the world, then you realize you have to deal with yourself. So you peel off the layer, and guess what? You're still an onion. <laughs> and so what you're dealing with now, the struggle is not against the world. It's against you and your children. And you see things coming out in them that you never thought were possible in the innocence of childhood. And you feel this sense that Paul is talking about of complete and utter hopelessness. And that's where many of us, you know, we attend these conferences. I, I know I remember attending many conferences with our family, 
you're trying to figure out how to be the best little family that we could be and how to be the best mother that I could be. I felt like I'd made all these sacrifices for my children. I gave up my career and I, you know, I loved them more than anything. Why weren't things going better? Why wasn't I a better mother? Why didn't I have patience? Even, you know, I was asking for it. I wanted to be changed, or so I thought. Um, but often I would lose hope and say, I can't, I can't go on. If I'm going to lose my children, if this is how things are going to turn out, you know, you start to see tendencies in them, and you start to be afraid, and you lose hope because, you, because of that experience of, I am trying and I have good intentions, but I keep doing the wrong thing. Okay, and I do have hope. I do, I, I do have hope to present to you and, uh, a thought, an epiphany that came to me actually on the way here that was like the missing piece of this puzzle um, that is just beautiful when you ponder scripture, when you ponder how the Lord deals with us. Um, he does not leave us without hope. So anyway, this is, this is what has come to me while I was teaching marketing. Okay, marketing, and I'm going to talk about this later in the context of my next presentation, uh, but marketing is about value. Well, so is salvation about value, okay? It's about how we define what is important, what is valuable. Okay, so what hit me in all of this was that at any given moment, whatever we value the most is going to determine what we do at that moment, okay? So if we have certain things, so for, for instance, if I want to, in, in college place, they have Rogers Bakery, they sell these donuts, these maple bar donuts that are, I can't even talk about them, they're so good, okay? I've heard of those. You've heard of those. <laughs> they have a wide and broad, yeah, broad reputation. Um, and so at the moment that I decide I'm going to go get one of those donuts, my health is lower on the totem pole in terms of my values at that, at that moment, okay? Now I'm not saying you can never have donuts, but I, what I'm saying is that at the moment when I make that choice, there's something more important to me, and it's the taste of that donut <laughs> that is more important to me at that moment than maybe my good health or the fact that I really eat too much sugar as it is, okay? So whatever's rising to the top, you can sometimes make a list. It's really, that's actually a good exercise for you to do is what's really most important to me at a given time? Or if you're trying to figure out why did I do this thing? Why did I lose my temper? Why did I make this decision? Ask the question, what was it that was most important to me at that moment that made me make that decision? That's very revealing because we tend to jump around. Now, as Christians, this is the amazing thing. God tends to step in and even these things out. He tends to focus us on the values that matter most. And the more those values come to mean to us, the less all those other things mean to us, okay? So he changes us over time and the values, certain values rise to the top. And then, it, then we see this change, this trend in our actions and in our thinking. But you can, you can analyze and you can look at the anatomy of your decisions and figure out why did I do this? Figure out what the value was that was most important to you at that moment and it'll at least tell you who you really were at that moment. So what comes out of this is that it's really important to choose your values wisely and deliberately, biblically. To seek your values from God himself, who's the only one who knows what's truly valuable, and let him decide what values are gonna rise to the top for you because we're not really deciding about donuts, are we? 
It's the values that dictated the choices about what we did or didn't do at any given time, okay? So really the choice was not made at the moment that we had the donut. The choice is made when we chose the value, whatever the value was, okay? So illuminating what those values, making ourselves face up to what our values really are is half the battle. So if we look at who Christ is, if we look at the Bible and we ask, what is the supreme value? What are, what are you gonna say? What is the supreme value? The theme of all scripture. Yeah, love. Yeah, I mean, everything, he summed up everything. He literally says, God is love. There was a, it, it hit me, I remember I had just lost my temper with Chelsea, my little, she was about three. I remember clear as day, it's like the Lord just spoke to my heart and said, love never fails. Now, these are things you memorize in, in Sabbath school all your life, and it sounds really great, but for some reason that hit me, the reality of it hit me that love never fails. And I'm thinking, love never fails. So that must mean that what I just did was not out of love, <laughs> okay? I mean, it was just, it, it kind of grounded me and made me have to face who I was at that moment. Um, and I do believe that love never fails. So the supreme value, if love really is our supreme value, this is going to influence all of our decisions and all of our actions. Um, Jesus actually revealed this. He said, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is what I love. The scripture is not, is so clear. You know, the disciples, Jesus would say things to them and tell them parables, and they would say, well, what did it mean? And he would tell them. <laughs> it wasn't as if he was trying to be obscure, mystical, or anything like that. He would tell them exactly what it meant. So he asked him, you know, what teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, and Jesus said, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The man replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So you had it right, right on. Okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength. And this is, so this is what the man answered. What did Jesus say to him? This is what the man answered. He said, so what, is, how, what, do, you, what do you do? And the man said, this is what you do. What did Jesus say to him? Yes, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Love God, love your neighbor, love your spouse, love your children, do this and you will live. So he's not saying do all these other things, don't do this, don't do that, don't eat this, don't do that, discipline your children in a certain way, you know, here's the list of 200 things, okay, that you have to live up. He's saying one thing, choose your value. Choose this supreme value, and if you can figure this value out and make this the supreme value in your life, all of these other things are going to fall into place. That's what's wonderful about scripture. He gives you one principle that if you get this one thing, everything else falls into place. So love for others, love for God. These are supreme values that form the ultimate basis for moral, not disengagement, but engagement. Love forms the basis for moral engagement. Without engagement, you cannot have relationship. Okay? Without engagement, you cannot have relationship, and that's engagement at every level. But how can we love enough? 
again, we have that tension between I do this one thing but I, that I don't want to do. Um, I know I have choices. I would like to propose, and we're going to build on this. Uh, Mark is going to share his, a little bit of his testimony in the next sec uh, session, and we'll continue building on this, this idea. But that is that it is as simple as one thing. I think Paul was right when he said we really cannot do this on ourselves. We really do not have the power to be patient, to be kind, to love our spouses, to put them first, to be, to be sweet to our children and, and give them the best example. We simply cannot do this. And so where does it come from? Where does that power come from? Where every other good thing comes from. It must be asked for. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. And we not only ask on behalf of ourselves, we ask on behalf of those we love, on behalf of our children, on behalf of our husbands and wives. For this reason, since the day we heard of you, Paul wrote, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, Colossians 1.9. I spent my entire trip down praying for my son, 16-year-old son, 17-year-old, almost 17-year-old son, who we left home alone uh, for these few days before he goes off to work on a farm for the summer. And, uh, you know, praying that the Lord will just be close and near to him. And, and not necessarily to keep him from doing bad things, but that the Lord will reveal to him who he really is, whatever that takes. So we know that God is the source of all good things. You know, this is not just a New Testament doctrine. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, all the way back to Genesis. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. People tend to see this, you know, talk about this as a new covenant. You talk about the new covenant. This is something that is introduced in Hebrews. This is introduced in Deuteronomy, that the Lord is the one who circumcises our hearts in order that we may love him. He does this thing, whatever this thing is, he does in us. And when he does that thing, Everything changes. Our values change. Our feelings change. Our emotions change. And consequently, our actions change. And, and then, of course, then our relationships change. So change is a gift. Change is a gift. And it's something I think that we have to acknowledge sometimes before the Lord will make that change in us. Because if we think we're conjuring this up as some strength in our own will, um, then maybe we haven't realized who we are in relationship. Our relationship with him is not in place yet. Every good present and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father who made the sun, moon, and stars. The Father doesn't change like the shifting shadows produced by the sun and the moon. I love that. He doesn't change. Love never fails, and God never changes. James 1.17. Now, this was the little thing that hit me on the way that just... It was, it's like, you know, I'm always looking for little pieces of the puzzle because it was very easy for me when I gave this presentation for the first time to say, okay, where's the hope? Ask, okay? Ask and it shall be given. So then you go home and you ask and things don't happen like you were hoping and we keep making those bad decisions and then what do we do? We become discouraged. We become discouraged with our children. We become discouraged with our relationships. We give up. Sometimes we get depressed, suicidal, uh, because we've been trying so hard and we have asked. So I want to ask you, think about this. When are our choices actually made? 
So at the point that I lose my temper with my children in the heat of the moment and, and passions take over. Now we had the, the, the quote from Elizabeth Elliot saying, you know, no emotion is so strong that we are without choice at a given moment. And yet Paul says, I do things that I do not want to do. So when do you suppose our choices are actually made? Are they made in the moment? When are they made? Yeah, is it possible? Now this is, this is to me hugely hopeful and liberating. Is it possible that the choices and the, the, and the failures that we're experiencing today are the culmination and the result of a lot of maybe lack of choices that have added up over time, that have prepared us to fail in this day? Okay, that's the bad news. That's the bad news, is that we may be making a lot of mistakes today that we set ourselves up for by our lack of asking, our lack of relationship with the Lord, foundations that we laid, you know. I mean, we ha and we see examples. I mean, the Lord is very consistent in giving us these messages in, in the realities, in the natural realities. When you start eating healthfully, when do you start to, to really feel the benefits? Is it overnight? No. Now, you may have some good changes that happen, but generally they say, what, the body regenerates itself over how many years? Yeah, I think it's seven, seven years. Now, of course, you know, that's what science has said. We don't know really if that's exactly how it happens. But in about three months, you can actually make changes in your, uh, from dietary changes to your blood levels and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and genetics, too. I don't know if you've ever, you know, heard some of the things that Wes Youngberg is sharing, you know, about health and all these epigenetics. This is definitely something to look into. But the spiritual parallel is that the choices that we made in the past may be setting us up for and when I lose my temper and I fail today, that may be water under the bridge for choices that I actually made in terms of my values and my habits and my feelings and what was important to me a year ago, five years ago, a long time ago. The hope, do you see the hope in that? That if I fail today and it was due to choices that are long past me, that's water under the bridge. That is water under the bridge and I do not need to be discouraged and overcome by that, I can still say, you know what? I did make, and I can look back on my life and say, I know exactly what I was doing and thinking a year ago or six months ago or even yesterday that set me up for this failure today. However, I have a future. I have a life and a future and my children have a future and I get to start making choices right now that are going to lay a foundation for the choices I'm going to make in the future. And so I can start eating healthfully now. I can start choosing healthfully now and thinking healthfully, choosing my thoughts carefully now. That is going to add up to value later on. I can choose love. And, and we, we do this. The Lord, he, and it suddenly makes these verses come to life. He says, seek first his kingdom. Are we seeking first? Are we truly seeking first his kingdom? Because he says, if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, if we put him at the center today, you know, the choices that you're making now to sit here and listen and learn things about him, this is a choice that is going to add up to value and to action and lay a foundation for things for years to come. But he says, you do this, seek me first, and all of these things will be added unto you. Good relationships, okay, good parenting skills, you know, it's not just your food and your clothing and health. 
but all of your relationships as well. And then look at this Joshua. He said that we, uh, Mark, we were talking, we were discussing this as we came up over the hill. Uh, they didn't wait, and Daniel didn't wait till he was in the moment. Joseph hadn't waited till he was in the moment of temptation. You know, he had made, they had made choices. Daniel purposed in his heart long before he was faced with temptation. So today we have that opportunity to purpose in our heart that from this day forward we are going to build, that we're going to continue choosing, that we're going to continue asking, and that in his time he is going to answer that prayer of our heart. It doesn't mean that he won't allow us sometimes to fail in order to realize who we really are, because sometimes we're going along pretty well. We start to think a little better of ourselves than we ought to, don't we? And so, so the Lord needs to remind us who we really are and where the gift of love and good values actually comes from. So choose you this day whom you will serve, and it will add up to good things later. So Again, I'll end where I began. The smallest good act today, the smallest good choice, the smallest good request today, ask and you shall receive. The smallest good act today is a strategic point from which a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come to you today asking for good things. We ask that you rearrange our values and that you do it in your own way and in your own time and whatever it takes, Lord, for us to be saved, for our families to be saved, for our children to be saved, that you will do that in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes. I mean, she talks a lot about the little things. You know, he would, was careful. We see the, the, that in Christ, you know, he folded his garment. I mean, the little things. But again, those choices are a reflection of who he was, who they were, who they already were. It wasn't that they were doing these small things in order to make them add up. They were reflections of value, values that were already in place and in order. Yeah. Well, and, and have you noticed, though, also that sometimes you, we start to make choices because we know Ellen White talks a lot about, you know, making good dietary choices tends to add up to other good things in our lives, that they are all connected. On the other hand, have you also found that you can focus on those dietary things and end up um, still kind of missing the boat in terms of the bigger picture and the bigger value? Um, again, you know, the, you know, the verse, these verses here, Seek ye first, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God. There is something about when you ask and the Lord comes in and changes your heart that suddenly all of those things start to really make sense to you. You're like, boy, I really do need to get my health in line. I think, you know, why did I eat all that stuff? I feel terrible. <laughs> you know, you, you, you gain an awareness of, of, of how bad choices are actually destroying your life and your relationships. And so you know, the seeking first and choosing whom you will serve, building that relationship with Christ tends to add up to good choices in what we eat, in our, how we treat other people. It's, I, in my own personal experience, and of course Mark is going to share that in a little, you know, the next session, is when Christ comes in and answers that prayer to change our hearts, your eyes literally are opened. There's, you see things and understand things. You know, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You literally see and feel things you just did not see and understand before. And so it just starts to make more sense to you to eat well. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.